Hello, and welcome to Mito Action's second roundtable discussion with Dr. Melanie Gillingham. If you were with us last month, Dr. Gillingham shared about cardiac complications that occur with LCHAD. And this month, she's back to share with us about LCHAD chorioretinopathy. My name is Stephanie Harry, and I'm an LCHAD parent, one of the patient support coordinators at Mito Action, and I'll be your host for this evening. Today's discussion will be recorded and available on the Mito Action website in the coming days, as well as on our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. This space is a little different than our traditional expert series. We set this call up as a Zoom meeting, um, which means that you have access to both video and audio. Please take this time to make sure that you're both muted and that your video is either on or off, depending on your preference. It's very important that you keep your audio off while you're not speaking, because this will give everyone a more pleasurable experience. <laughs> if you have any questions during Dr. Gillingham's presentation, please feel free to put them in the chat, and I will ask them after the presentation, or if you'd like, just remember them, and after the presentation, you can ask them yourself by raising your hand. So without further ado, I want to officially introduce Dr. Melanie Gillingham. Dr. Melanie Gillingham's research in the Department of Molecular and Medical Genetics has focused on various novel therapies for fatty acid oxidation disorders. For 20 years, Dr. Gillingham and her colleagues have conducted clinical trials in subjects with disorders and fatty acid oxidation pathway. She's examined the effects of MCT supplementation prior to exercise and the effects of increased dietary protein on metabolic control and energy balance in subjects with LCHAD, CP. PT2 and VLCAT deficiencies. Dr. Gillingham serves on the Planning Committee for Inform, an international group working for the advancement of medical and nutrition therapies for fatty acid oxidation disorders. Dr. Gillingham, in collaboration with Dr. Vockley, completed a randomized trial to examine the effects of an odd chain fatty acid supplement, triheptanoin, on myopathy and cardiac functions of patients with long chain fatty acid oxidation disorders. Dr. Gillingham has also conducted a series of studies examining the ideology of retinopathy in LCHAD and the role of diet in the progression of vision loss. Overall, her lab studies fatty acid oxidation disorders with a particular focus on LCHAD, and currently they have both human and basic science projects going on. Dr. Gillingham, thank you so much for joining us again. It's so great to see you twice in a couple of weeks, and we just so appreciate you and all of your hard work, and I know that everyone is excited to hear from you, um, and so I will go ahead and turn it over to you. Thanks, Stephanie. That was a, a really nice um, introduction, so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Um, let's go back up to the beginning here. Here we go. All right. I think you see the slides okay? Good. Okay. I, I'm really excited today. So I'm going to um, share a lot of information with you. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, LCHAD retinopathy. I'm going to provide some of the first look at our data and our natural history study. And I was telling Stephanie earlier, I have some brand new data that I'm going to share that I haven't shared with anybody else. You all are the first to see it. I haven't shared it with any scientific board or any meeting, um, but it, it's really exciting. So let's get started. So I have to show the pathway, the fatty acid oxidation pathway to start. And there's a couple of points I want to make because I know this is a, a really busy slide. We're talking about LCHAD deficiency and LCHAD is this little enzyme right here, you probably can't see it. I need to get my pointer here, laser pointer. There we go. This little enzyme right here um, out of this whole pathway. And it's part of trifunctional protein. So trifunctional protein has an alpha subunit and a beta subunit. And two alphas and two betas find each other. And they make this funny little shaped protein like this. The alpha has this hydratase activity, then the LCHAT activity, and the beta holds the thiolase activity. And so when we talk about LCHAT deficiency, we're talking about decreases in this enzyme activity, but the hydratase and the thiolase are relatively preserved. Now, most patients with LCHAT have this common missense mutation is what we call it, where one base pair in the DNA is changed and it's called G1528C. It's written down here. And 
we think that that mutation, um, this missense mutation started in Europe. So a lot of people from Europe with European, um, descent have this common mutation. And as you'll see, most of the patients that we see in, in the U.S. have at least one copy of that. So every patient inherits one copy from their mom, one copy from their dad. So you could inherit two copies of this and have LCHAD, or you could have one copy of this common mutation and a different one, or you could have a, completely different, none of this. And, and we'll talk more about that. So that's what we're talking about when we say LCHAD. We're talking about this enzyme part of this larger trifunctional protein um, complex. So this is a picture of eyes from different um, LCHAD patients. And each row is a single individual over time. So the top one, two, three, four rows are LCHAD patients. And you can see that over time, it starts off looking pretty pink and smooth, and you start getting these speckly spots where these places that are bright that are don't have the, the smooth pink pigment. And these speckly white spots are where the photoreceptors have, have died. You've lost cells. And those would, from someone looking through this eye, it would look like a hole or a black spot in their vision. Um, obviously, it's different in different patients. So this patient started at five, and this is up to 14. Here's one that started at eight, and this is up to 12, and it's more severe. Um, so it's variable, but it starts off with this kind of smooth pink picture, like most people's eyes look, and it develops these little white holes. The one thing I'd like to point out is the trifunctional protein, the, the person who's lost all the, all three of the enzymes in that protein we just talked about, that's down here. And if you'll notice, they, their eyes look pretty darn good. It hasn't, you haven't seen a lot of change over time in this last line here. So one thing I wanted to mention is we're going to talk a lot about what cell in the eye, what, what, what of the, what cells in the retina are the problem or dying first in L-child retinopathy. And one thing that Dr. Panisi, the ophthalmologist I work with, this is his slide, and I have talked about is that I have a lot of patients tell me, well, my son or daughter or my myself, I've been diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. That is a misnomer. <laughs> um, I think a lot of ophthalmologists look at it and they don't know what to call it, so they call it that, but that's not what we're talking about. And this slide, I think, really illustrates that. Retinitis pigmentosa is a genetic disease that causes the death of these photoreceptors, these cells that are purple right here. Those are the rods and cones, the photoreceptors in your eye that signal to your brain what it is you're seeing. And when you lose the photoreceptors, then you can't, you can't have that signal go to your brain. Well, people who have retinitis pigmentosa, this is what their eye looks like. And you can see it looks really different. It does not look like LCHAD. But there are other diseases that another cell type, which is illustrated in these X's down here, it's called the retinal pigment epithelium. It's this cell layer at the base of the very back of the eye. And this cell layer supports the rods and cones. It's the, it's the intermediate layer that feeds them, that gives them nutrients, that takes care of these rods and cones and makes sure they're healthy. And when these cells die, you get a different picture. It looks different. And so these are the diseases when the retinal pigment epithelium dies. It's the choridemia. It's another rare genetic disease, gyrate atrophy, and then LCHAD. LCHAD looks like these diseases. So we believe that the cell that's dying first in LCHAD retinopathy is this retinal pigment epithelium. It's not the rods and cones. It's this support layer. Um, at the base of the, of the eye, at the very back of the eye. So why do we think that? So I'm going to show you some other pictures. We've been taking these pictures for those of you that have participated in the natural history study. So these are, it's like a x-ray image of the, all the layers of the eye. And the, the retinal pigment epithelium is this uh, dark line that goes right along here. And if you get breaks in it, then you're seeing that those cells are, are, are dying. And what happens is you get these little curly things that you can kind of see. They're, they, they're curling up. Those are rods and cones, the photoreceptors, who don't have any support underneath them. They've lost the RPE underneath them. And so they curl up on themselves in an effort to try to, to stay alive. Um, and they're called retinal tubulations. And this is very, um, this is what we 
see in cases where the retinal pigment epithelium is, is dying first. So that's why we think both on the pictures I just showed you and these, that it's the RPE that's the problem in LCHAD retinopathy, not the rods and cones, but this retinal pigment epithelium at the, at the very back of the eye. So what does it translate to for vision? So if your RPE are getting sick, how does that affect how you see? Um, so this was a study we did where we looked at it. it's 21 um, patients or different patients, and we've seen them at all different ages. So age is along the top here, starting at zero out to 30. And then this is the scale of vision. So like if you're reading a vision chart, like at your eye doctor, so in this case, zero is 2020 vision. And if you go down here to 1.5, that's 2630 vision. So this is not seeing very well. This is a really bad vision. And if you look at the dark circles, those are the patients with that common mutation that we talked about, at least one copy of the G1528C, that common mutation. And you can see that over aging, that the LCHAD vision is declining. But the trifunctional protein, if you lose all three functions, is not. It's staying pretty steady. So there's a difference by genotype. There's a difference if you carry that common mutation versus if you don't. And the presence of that common mutation appears to be associated with vision loss over uh, the lifespan. So some other evidence that it's that, that common mutation that might be part of the problem we looked at where do we see the common mutation around the globe? So we see lots of the common uh, mutations. So uh, as far as carriers, one in 680 adults in the Netherlands carries this common mutation. Finland, it's one in 240 adults. In Poland, it's one in 889. So there's a lot of carriers in Northern Europe. But if you look in Japan, Asian countries, there are no common mutations have been reported. They all have different mutations, predominantly beta subunit mutations of the beta um, protein. And nobody in Asia has had reported retinopathy. So in the Asian patients, they have different mutations and they don't seem to get retinopathy. They have the other symptoms of um of a fatty acid oxidation disorder, rhabdo, cardiomyopathy, but they don't have the, the retinal complications. So the retinal complication seems to be associated with this common mutation that is seen at fairly high um, incidence in Northern Europe. So let's talk about the what we've said so far. So we don't think it's these photoreceptors that are dying first. What we think is that these pigment epithelium, these little green cells down here, those cells die, and then the photoreceptors don't have any way to get the, the, the nutrients they need to stay healthy, and so then eventually the photoreceptors die after this RPE layer dies first. So if we can save the RPE layer, that will keep the photoreceptors health, healthy, okay? And what we also have said is that it's different by genotype. So people with the common mutation or LCHAD seem to have more vision loss than patients with trifunctional protein deficiency, where you lose all three functions of that um, protein. So why the difference in genotype? That really has stumped me for a while. Why is there this difference? So if you, if you just have LCHAD deficiency, you just lose this, you have worse vision, but if you lose this whole protein, you knock out all three of those, your vision's better. Doesn't that seem odd? Why would losing three things be better than just losing one function? I think what it has to do with is this hydratase, this, this enzyme right here. So if you'll notice the first step in trifunctional protein, it puts this, what we call an OH, a hydroxyl group right here. It creates a hydroxy fatty acid. And you all will be familiar with that term because your doctors measure your acylcarnitines and they look at hydroxyacylcarnitines. So patients with LCHAD who just lose this enzyme have higher hydroxyacylcarnitines in their blood because the hydratase is still there. They still have active hydratase. So it makes this hydroxy group on the fatty acid. So that's the difference biochemically if we're having LCHAD to TFP is the presence of those hydroxy 
acylcarnitines and those hydroxy fatty acids. So a while ago, we looked at those hydroxyacylcarnitines and we asked, were they related to the decline in vision? So RMAX is the electroretinogram, the highest flash, the, the biggest intensity. And patients who had lower hydroxyacylcarnitines had better ERG response than those with high hydroxyacylcarnitines. So we saw this correlation between the hydroxyacylcarnitines in the blood and higher hydroxyacylcarnitines were associated with a decline in vision. Um, and I think that's related to that, that common mutation. So here's another way to look at the same thing. So for those of you who've had the ERG or had your um, son or daughter have it, they have those little um, contact lenses on their eyes and they flash that light. So in a, in a normal um, individual, you'll get these peaks where the light is, the, the retina is responding. It's, it's like those heartbeat uh, EKGs you would get, but it's one for your eye. You get these big peaks with those light flashes. For someone who has low hydroxyacylcarnitines, you can look at the peaks and you can compare them and they're very similar to the control. But this is the same age um, and this is someone who has high hydroxyacylcarnitines and you can see that there's not much of a peak. So the peaks are really dampened in someone who has high biochemical um, acylcarnitines. So we think that these acylcarnitines are associated with that um, decrease in vision. So what causes acylcarnitines to go up? So um, the reason the acylcarnitines would go up is if, if your body was trying to burn fat. So let's say you fast for a long period of time. Your acylcarnitines go up with fasting. Um, they would go up if you got sick, if you had rhabdomyolysis or some sort of cr metabolic crisis, they would go up. Um, how much fat in your diet raises them is, is a bit up for debate, but in theory, a higher, higher fat diet would raise those acylcarnitines. So anytime you're using fat, that's when you make these acylcarnitines and they, they show up in blood of someone with, with, um, LCHAD. So this is, um, the different species of acylcarnitines that you get back on those lab reports. And this is after an overnight fast. And you can see that it's, it's variable. Some people make more than others. Um, and some of them can be quite high. After you eat breakfast, we fed people breakfast and there was this nice drop. They never go back. The, the, the pink shaded area is normal. They never go back all the way to normal, but they definitely, after you eat, they drop, they go down. And interestingly, with LCHAT, exercise doesn't seem to make a huge difference. I was worried that exercise might make them go back up, but in LCHAT, it doesn't seem to, to raise them that much. It does in CPT too, but, but not in, they have different um, acylcarnitines, but for LCHAT, exercise doesn't seem to have much of an impact. So it's really that fasting, small, frequent meals that try to keep those hydroxyacylcarnitines low. So let's compare acylcarnitines in patients with trifunctional protein where you lose all three of those protein functions versus LCHAD. So in this graph, all the black lines are different patients with LCHAD and the red are the two patients with trifunctional protein. And so the, the trifunctional protein patients have really low hydroxyacylcarnitines and then the LCHED patients is pretty broad. It's pretty variable um, based on their different mutations. So again, I, I think that the it's very related to those hydroxyacylcarnitines seem to be tied to the vision loss that we're seeing and the and the um, the loss of the RPE, the retinal pigment epithelium, the back of the eye. So this slide is just to say that if you get sick, let's say you have um, rhabdomyolysis and your CKs go way up, you got 50,000 CKs, well, your acylcarnitines go up at that time too. So there's been some other reports that say more frequent hospitalizations are associated with more rapid vision loss. So the more frequently you get sick, the more it, it could damage those retinal pigment epithelium because those acylcarnitines are really are going up. So there's several papers from Finland um, from Norway that have suggested that the hospitalizations, frequent hospitalizations can, can damage the vision as well. So what do we know about the pathophysiology or what causes LCHAD retinopathy, chorioretinopathy? Well, it seems to be tied to this common mutation, the G1528C, which we're going to keep talking about. And when you have high hydroxyacylcarnitines, it seems to make it worse. So we know that. 
So why is that? What, what are our hypotheses or why do we think that is? Uh, one hypothesis is that the hydroxyacylcarnitines or those hydroxy fatty acids are in fact toxic to the cells. They make the cells sick. Or the fact that you just have a protein there is, is a problem. So those are our two best guesses as to why these um, fatty acids, these hydroxyacylcarnitines might be damaging to the cell. So that led us to the natural history study, which many of you on the call are, are actually participating in. So we, we kind of know what cells we think are dying. We think we know what the pathophysiology likes, but we still need to know more about how this happens over time. So we wrote this grant to the NIH and we got it funded. Um, and the goal was to recruit 40 subjects across the ages. And um, we would see them for two study visits at baseline and then two years later and do a lot of, of eye testing um, about two years apart. So um, this is the data that I recently, uh, Dr. Panisi, the ophthalmologist, recently presented in Germany. So I'm going to give you sort of the first look at, at the data that we collected for the natural for the natural history study. So first, just a little timeline for the study. We got it funded in September 2019. Our final protocol was approved in February of 2020, and then COVID hit. And it shut down. And I was very nervous that we were not going to be able to recruit all the patients that we needed to recruit. So we our first patient enrolled in July of 2020. And I am so thrilled to say that we got all 40 patients enrolled. The last one uh, finished their baseline visit in August. So we have 40 patients all enrolled. So thank you so much for participating. This is huge that we got that many patients in that short a period of time. We've now started doing the two-year follow-up visits, and we'll complete the study in 2024. It will be the last year of the of the trial. So we've just barely dove into the data. This is just a very, very brief look. But two questions I wanted to ask with the data we have so far. The first question is, does diagnosis by newborn screening change the, ret the progression of retinopathy? In other words, do are patients diagnosed by newborn screening, do they have better vision than if uh, you were born before newborn screening and were picked up symptomatically? So that's one question I'll try to answer. And then the second, what is the impact of that genotype, that common mutation? How does that impact uh, the vision? So those are the two questions that we looked at just briefly. Again, we're still diving into this data. So a little bit about who's participating. We have six patients between the years of two and seven, 10 between eight and 14 years of age, 13 between 15 and 20, and nine above 21 years of age. You can see sort of their um, sex and then how many were diagnosed by newborn screening. Clearly the younger ones, because newborn screening had been started, were diagnosed by newborn screening. And then you can see the different uh, genotypes over here. So when I say one copy of the common mutation, that means one copy of G1528C and then a another mutation that's unique to that family. And then two copies would be two copies of the common mutation. All right, so let's look at, so I will say this data has the has the first 38 patients. The last two were still being seen before I, I pulled the data and did this analysis. So it's 38, not 40, but we will include all 40 in the in the final analysis. So the first thing we did is we looked at what's the difference in vision between people that were diagnosed symptomatically, which was 11 of them, versus people that were picked up by newborn screening, or they had an older sibling or a family history, and so therefore they checked that baby early um, on before newborn screening because they knew the family had um, LCHAD. So just to orient you to these graphs, OS is your right eye, OD is your left eye. I don't know why ophthalmologists call it OS and OD, but that's what they do, right, left. Here's age across the top again, and zero would be 2020 vision, and then 1.5 would be really pretty bad vision. All of the patients that were diagnosed by newborn screening or family history are in blue dots, and then those that are presented symptomatically are in orange. And what you can clearly see is the orange line is lower in both eyes than the blue line. And when we did the statistical analysis, diagnosis makes a, a big impact. So what I think this data is telling us is that newborn screening makes an impact. It changes how fast the vision loss goes. This is great news. And I we need to get this published. This is a huge 
um, this is huge because uh, it gives data to support continued newborn screening in the United States. But as I was talking to Stephanie, there's lots of countries that don't screen. Uh, England, France, there's a number of company, countries that don't screen for LCHAD, specifically not LCHAD, because they say there's no data that newborn screening makes a difference. And this data shows that it does. It changes it. So this is data that could impact other people's decisions to add newborn screening for LCHAD in the future. So I'm super excited to show that, yes, newborn screening changes the trajectory of the, of the vision loss over time. Okay, genotype. So if we look at our 38 patients, so first of all, trifunctional protein deficiency is pretty rare. There's only three people that have that in, in our group of 40. Um, we have 21 people who have one copy of that G15 common mutation, G1528C, and then one private mutation related to their family. And then 14 people have two copies of that common mutation. So we looked at the ERGs, the electroretinograms, and to say, does, does it differ by genotype? So again, OS is your right eye, OD is your left eye, and this is the response of the rod. So those photoreceptors that see black and white vision. And the higher the response, the bigger that waveform in the ERG. And what you can see is that the patients with TFP have pretty good response on both eyes and that the patients who have two copies of that common mutation, is the, the mean is the lowest. In the middle, the ones that have one copy of that common mutation and one private mutation, it's, it's highly variable. You can see that there's a big range. Some people have pretty low vision and some people have pretty good vision. Um, and I think that second mutation that's unique to their family really impacts how it affects their vision. But this is telling me that the genotype does make a big difference and that this common mutation, again, seems to be associated with the, with the decline in vision, having this um, particular mutation. So here's the cone. So those are the photoreceptors that see color. And we see the same pattern. So again, right eye, left eye, the TFP patients' vision's pretty good. The ones with one copy of the common mutation, highly variable. And then the lowest group is the group with the two copies of the common mutation. So the mutation seems to have a big impact on the vision over time. Um, I think the people who have one copy of the common and then another one, that, that second mutation seems to be um, influencing. Uh, some, some of those second mutations might be what we would call more severe. And so their vision might be more impacted and some of those second mutations might be milder and they might not be as, as um, impacted. So I think this is telling us that genotype is making a difference. What I haven't done yet, but we're doing now is we're going to send some blood samples off and see if the genotype tracks with those acyl carnitines, those hydroxyacyl carnitines. In other words, in patients that um, have two copies, are their hydroxyacyl carnitines higher than um those who say with TFP or who have um, a mild or second mutation. So we're, we're working on correlating those two things now. So that's the just very brief preliminary look at what we have for the natural history. So just early conclusions for the retinopathy stuff. Newborn screening makes a difference. It changes the progression over time. Genotype plays a big role um, the presence of one or two copies seems to be associated with decreased rod and cone function. And that variability, if you have a private mutation and one copy of the common mutation, is probably influenced by that, by that second mutation. Okay, so now I'm going to move into what we've been doing on the basic science side. We've been talking about the clinical trial. And at the same time, my, my lab's been working on some preclinical models um, to develop treatments. So um, let's dive into this. And this is some of the data that I haven't shared with anybody else. So one of the ways that we wanted, I, when I first started studying LCHAD retinopathy 20 years ago, there were no mouse models, there were no models to, to study it in a, in a um, bench science, in, in, a, in a lab. And then I read this paper about how you could take skin fibroblasts from a skin biopsy and create retinal cells. And, and that changed everything. I was so excited about this idea. So that's what we did. We, we took some skin cells from patients who had had a biopsy at the, when they were children for the diagnosis. 
And you can add these Yamanaka factors and it causes the cells to become stem cells. So they de-differentiate and they become stem cells. And then you can add some other genetic factors and push them to be any cell of the body. So this is just showing that we reprogrammed them. We made them stem cells. And then we added some other genetic factors and we pushed them to become those retinal pigment epithelial cells, those cells that we think are dying first in the back of the retina. They're beautiful cells on the plate. So they're growing in a Petri dish and they, they get these pigments and they form these um, hexagonal monolayers. They all touch each other and they form this layer on the dish. Um, and this is saying that they express all the right proteins, that they look like they're supposed to, and they're forming these nice layers. So we took these um, skin fibroblasts that had LCHAD. We took um, wild type. I need to explain that. So wild type is just normal cells. We call it wild type. I don't know why we call it wild type, but that's what is how we how we name it in, in science papers. So we're always comparing the LCHAD cells back to the, the normal here. So we took normal skin cells, we took LCHAD cells, and we pushed them and we made them these retinal cells in a dish. So the first thing we did is, well, do they act like retinal cells? Do they do what retinal cells are supposed to do? One of the things that RPE are supposed to do is that they take up the fatty acids from the photoreceptors. The photoreceptors shed these fatty acids. When we first wake up in the morning, photoreceptors shed these fatty acids and the RPE eat them. So we said, could the R, could our RPE in this dish eat the photoreceptor outer segments or the fatty acids? So didn't know you could do this, but we got cow eyes. And we got cow uh, photoreceptors and we fed them to our cells in the little Petri dish. And the answer is yes, they eat them. So when you see this, uh, the green color, that's, those are the um, photoreceptors, or the, the fatty acids that the cells have taken up. And then you can see down here that they have these green dots that are deep down in the cell. So they, so yes, they, they act like they're supposed to, they, they eat those fatty acids like they're supposed to. They form these nice tight junctions and they form a, an electrical current, basically, when we grow them on these wells. So they're, they're acting just like they're supposed to. And then we said, well, can they burn fat? Because if they have LCHAD, then in theory, they can't burn fat for energy. So we added, um, so in this top green bar, we added to the cells, C16 is palmitate. So we added a fatty acid to the normal cells. And you see that the oxygen consumption, how much oxygen it's using to burn that fat goes way up. And then um, it goes up even again after a couple of other chemical additions. So their basal respiration or how much oxygen you're using with C16 or palmitate is much higher in the, in the normal cells. But when we did the same experiments with the LCHAD cells, they don't, they don't burn. They don't burn more. They don't, the oxygen doesn't go up and they don't burn more, more fat in, in any of this place. So they don't burn fat. Okay. That's like what we thought, thought LCHAD cells can burn fat. Well, the retinal pigment epithelium, one of the things they do is they make ketones and they place the ketones towards the photoreceptors. The photoreceptors can use ketones for energy. I kind of think of retinal pigment epithelium very much like a liver cell. So livers, liver cells make ketones. And when you feed these cells uh, fat, palmitate, the normal cells, the wild type cells, they make lots of ketones, but the LCHAD cells can't make as much ketones. So they don't make ketones and they don't burn fat. So that's good. They're acting just like LCHAD cells. Now, if you feed them fat, what do they do with it? If they can't oxidize it, do they accumulate? Does it build up? And the answer is yes. So this, these uh, images on the bottom, when we fed them palmitate fat, you get these bright white spots and then more reds indicating that it's just kind of building up in the cell. The cell doesn't know what to do with it. So it kind of accumulates. And then when we measure how much, you can see that the LCHAD cells have more uh, fat in those, in those retinal pigment epithelium that were growing in, in the Petri dish. Do they accumulate hydroxyacylcarnitines? Yes. So when you add C16 and then you take the media off the top and you send it off to the lab, just like you do with blood, you get all these hydroxyacylcarnitines. So that's in this orange striped bar. And you can't even see the blue bars because the normal cells don't have any of those. So they accumulate these acylcarnitines in the Petri dish. Are they healthy? Do they act normally? Well, we looked at their mitochondria and what you want to see is this, this yellow color. So when green and red overlay, it turns yellow. That's healthy mitochondria and you don't see that much in the LCHAD. So they are, they have sick mitochondria. They're, they're, they don't look quite as healthy as the wild type cells. 
So the next thing we did is, you know, the eye gets a lot of light. It gets a lot of stress when we, when we get light shining in our eyes and it causes what we, it's a very oxidative environment. So an oxidative stress is one of the things that happens to retinal cells. So we wondered if the LCHAD cells might be more susceptible to to oxidative damage. So we treated them with hydrogen peroxide and in glucose, they're fine. But if you take away the glucose and you give them fat to burn instead of glucose, they die. So if you, if you, they, if they have to rely on fat and they have an oxidative stress like hydrogen peroxide, they don't do well. Whereas the wild type or the normal cells do better with fat as an energy source than they do with glucose. So they look healthier with fat, but with fat on the LCHED cells, they, they die. We did the same thing with a more physiological stress. So polyunsaturated fats from those outer segments are highly oxidative. So we fed them some of those. And again, the LCHAD cells died, but the wild type cells looked great. So under oxidative stress, these cells don't look good. They die. So they accumulate fat. They don't handle oxidative stress. They don't burn fat. They don't make ketones. Can we do anything to fix them? Can we, can we treat the cells in the dish, in the petri dish, and make it so that they'll survive under these conditions? Oh, I got a few more damaged cells. So this is just saying that the, the more red, the more dam, the more reactive oxygen species and, and damage they have. Okay. So rescue. This is the brand new data that I haven't shared with anybody. So, um, there's one gene therapy for, for the eyes that's been approved. It's called Lexterna, and it's for a different disease, um, Leber's congenital amaurosis. But the concept is they, they take a virus, uh, an adeno-associated virus, and they put the DNA in the middle of the virus, and they feed the, they, they inject the virus in the back of the eye. The retinal pigment epithelium take up the virus and then use that DNA to make the protein that's missing. So that's what's currently happening. And for Lieber's um, eye disease, it's working amazing and it's FDA approved. So we wanted to try the same approach in our cells on the Petri dish. So we, we tried the, the eight, we tried three different viruses, one, two, and five. That's not really that important, but we tried different ones. We put the LCHAD gene inside the virus and we fed it to the cells. And you can see that five worked best because you see more green on the five. So we ended up going with this one. We're going out with the number five type and it, and it goes to the right place. The green shows that it's going to where it's supposed to go. So here we go. Here's the data. Do they survive? If we add this virus to those cells, does it make it? If we, if we put a gene therapy on these cells, do they survive? And the answer is yes. This is amazing. So we added, uh, this is the wild types. You feed them C16 and the oxygen consumption goes up. Just the plain LCHAD, nothing happens. But when we add the virus, their oxygen consumption goes up just like the, just as much as the wild type cells. They make ketones. And when you add the oxidative stress, they survive. They survive. Every test we did, we added the virus and the cells survived and they look like normal cells. Literally, this is so exciting. We, we were able to correct them. Now here's the really cool part. We send it off for acyl carnitines, completely normalized the acyl carnitines. Acyl carnitines are in the purple bars with the virus and there's no hydroxyacyl carnitines in these cells. It's so exciting. It's, it's amazing. So we've treated these cells and they look great. So we think we have a way to treat the retinal pigment epithelium that will fix these acyl carnitines and allow them to survive under oxidative stress. Now. So this is a summary of our cells. Um, they don't burn fat. They accumulate acyl carnitines. And if you stress them with either hydrogen peroxide or oxidation of some kind, they, they tend to die. But we've added a gene therapy a, um, copy of, of LCHAD, and it rescues all the phenotype and normalizes their acyl carnitines. So for a long time, Dr. Panisi, the ophthalmologist I work with, has said, that's great. You can do cell work all you want, but we have to have a mouse. We have to have an animal model to treat and to show the FDA that we can do it in an animal. So we made a mouse. We took a mouse and we put in that common mutation, that G1528C, that common mutation we've been talking about all night, and we put it into the mouse with a system called CRISPR-Cas9 you may have read about. And we brought up these mice 
And so the first thing we wanted to know is do the mice burn fat? So we put them, um, for any of you who've been in studies where we had the little bubble over your head and we measured your oxygen consumption and CO2 to measure whether you're burning fat, that's what we do with the mice, only it's a little box like this. So we put them in this little box. And you can see that in the dark, so mice are nocturnal. So in the dark time is when they're awake and moving. Then the male mice, these mice are not burning as much fat. So if they're burning fat, they stay down here in the blue. Those are the, the wild type or normal mice. And in the orange, the LCHAD mice, especially when they're awake, they're not burning. They're burning more glucose and less fat. Then we um, collected some blood and sent it off for acylcarnitines. And they have, I mean, it's not subtle. They have huge hydroxyacylcarnitines, way high. So the mice don't burn fat and they accumulate acylcarnitines. So then we fasted them because, you know, when you fast, kids get low glucose, hypoketotic, hypoglycemia. So we took away their food and you can see both the males and females, their glucose is lower. They don't make ketones. So they get hypoketotic, hypoglycemia. And then we exercise them on a treadmill and you can again see the LCHAD mice don't run as much. They can't run as far. They get um, rhabdo earlier and the wild type mice can keep running. So, so far the mouse looks like it's doing all, all the things that we would expect that an LCHAD, we would see in an, in an LCHAD patient. So then we sent them off to the KCI to get their vision checked. And I was like, oh man, I hope their eyes, isn't that terrible to wish my mice had bad vision? Uh, but I did and they did. This is very exciting. So this is their um, visual performance. So believe it or not, you can check the vision of a mouse and the LCHED mice have much worse vision than the normal mice. Um, we did ERGs in the mice. We do have to knock them out to do the ERG. But here's the waveform. If you flash the light for the normal mouse, and then here's the LCHED mouse. So you can see that it's much reduced, both the, the scotopic as well as the photopic. So this is RPE and, and um, cones are much lower. And then... Dr. Panisi tells me these are spots like we see in the humans. It, it looks the same to me, but that's what he tells me is there. So I'm going to believe him. And then when we look at the eyes, um, they, they get these fat droplets in the back of the, the retinal pigment epithelium. They get these huge fat accumulation in the mouse eyes. So we have a mouse who has LCHAD retinopathy and we have a virus that we can inject to see if we can prevent this mouse from losing its eyesight. So um, the mouse also has a cardiac phenotype. So they have lower ejection fraction and larger left ventricular wall mass. Um, I'm not gonna spend too much time on their cardiac phenotype. Um, but we are working, we're breeding mice right now. Pups started getting born on Friday. They're gonna be born all this week and into next week. And those are the mice that First, second week of November, we're going to treat half of them with a retinal gene therapy and then half with a saline uh, sham. And then six months later, we're going to look at their vision to see if the retinal gene therapy prevents these mice from losing their vision over time. So we are so close. We are, we're about to start this, this key experiment. Um, I'm super excited. So conclusions from the mice and the cells. Um, we think it's associated with that RPE loss. So we made some RPEs. We've done some, some um, testing. The preclinical models are really helping us understand what's going on. Um, and it looks like a gene addition approach by adding this virus is actually going to work. And it's going to restore the cells to a normal and normalize their acylcarnitines. So I'm so excited about uh, that data. I've, I've shared a ton of information probably a lot of scientific jargon, your heads might be spinning. I have a wonderful team of people. I didn't do this all myself. All these people have helped, but now I'm going to try not to cry. Um, it really would not have happened without you. So I had these ideas and tons of you who are on this call have financially supported, your families have supported, have given to get this work off the ground. And now the NIH has bought into it and they've supported us. And we, this is really a community effort and we wouldn't be where we are today without everybody that's on this call. So I'm so incredibly grateful and thank you so much for your support. And that is what I have. So I will stop and try to answer any questions anybody has.
Well, Dr. Gillingham, it's so exciting. It's so exciting news. And I'm crying too, because it's very emotional. So <laughs> thank you so much for all your hard work. And we have some questions that are coming in. Um, just a reminder, guys, you are more than willing to uh, or welcome to ask your own questions. If you'd like, just raise your hand or unmute yourself and feel free to, to do that. Um, we did have a question out that I'll kick us off with. And then um, if you don't want to ask your own question, if you put it in the chat, I can ask it for you. That's also an option. So it's totally up to you. Um, one parent asked in the beginning part of the study um, that you were talking about, she was curious how many hours was the overnight fasting? Like when you showed the um, ACL uh, carotene um, being increased? Yeah, um, we, we typically shoot for 10, but those of you who've been in um, my retinopathy study, some people it's been as short as, I, I think the shortest has been six hours of fasting. Um, so, you know, acyl carnitines kind of do like glucose, they go up with fasting, they go down with feeding. And so to try to standardize it, I try to ship, typically shoot for eight to 10 hours, but that's not been everybody. So it's been as, as few as six, but um, as a maximum of 10. Okay. Um, and then could this gene therapy potentially repair vision loss? That's a fantastic question. Um, and, and the answer is, I don't know. It's, it's possible. Um, in the Liebers trial, when they, when they started treating Liebers with this gene therapy that's approved, their plan was they were just going to halt it going, getting worse. But in fact, some of those kids did get vision back. So it worked better than they anticipated. Um, so it's possible once we start doing it, that we would see the same, but we don't know. And so we do it, I, I, you know, you can't say for sure, but in the Libra's trial, it, it, it worked better than they anticipated. And some kids got vision back. How often do you think the injections would have to be? It's just once, once you can only do it once. It oh, is, it, okay. it's not, it's not, um, inconsequential. So I don't want to pass it off as easy. Um, it's a, it's a surgery. So they put you under and the needle has to go into the back of the eye between those retinal pigment and the photoreceptor. So it's a very precise injection. I think there are three places in the United States that are doing it, uh, here, OHSU, um, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the NIH. So it's a, it's a, it's a delicate, uh, surgery to put that, that the virus in the eye. Um, but there are, there's probably about, um, 50 or 60 trials going on right now of other vectors for other rare genetic diseases that they're testing. So it's, it's happening, but, um, it's, it's not inconsequential. I don't want to pass it off as super easy. It, it still is a surgery with this vector, this needle going into your eye. Um, so when you inject the virus into the eye, does that affect any other parts any other organs as well, or is it just specific to the eye or do they don't a, know? Yeah, no, no, that's a great question. Now that's one of the reasons why I think retinal um, gene therapy has been so popular is they kept looking for virus to pick it up in a peripheral vein and it stays in the eye. The eye is somewhat kind of by itself and it didn't get into general circulation. So it's only affecting the eye. Now for LCHAD, that might not be not be the best, right? Because we would like to fix the muscle and the liver and, and that kind of thing. It's problem is that those gene therapies are a little further behind. It's a little harder, especially muscle to hit all the muscle. It's harder. We haven't figured out really how to hit heart very well, whereas eye seems to be working quite well. So right now the retinal gene therapies are all staying in the eye and they're not affecting other parts of the body. Do you know how long the Libra's trial um, has been approved or been going on? The Libra's trial started probably 10 years ago, um, but it was approved probably three years ago, I think, when the FDA approved it. Um, and the thing that I think the, the ophthalmology world and I are, are, I'm so excited about is that it, it's a, it, it's, it's created a path for the rest of us to follow because it's approved. FDA approved it. And it was so successful. I think that's why all of the rest of us are, are kind of falling in line. So we're going to use the same, you know, virus and everything else. And we just change the gene in the middle. It's leading us. It's, it's a pathway that's already been proven and it works. So I think that that makes it exciting. So the timeline, it sounds like, has changed because it's already been It's approved. speeding up because it's because Libra's was the first. When you're the first, it's always the one that takes the longest. Yeah. Okay. And with the um, 
uh, Michelle asked, um, specifically like with the mice, like how do you plan to administer it? Like with the injection too, like, or do you have any thoughts around how you're going to do this to your mice? <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. We've already been testing it. So, um, again, I, it's not me. I have a great team. Uh, Renee Riles is a, a PhD scientist at the KCI who injects, uh, the mice. So we've tested it in, um, we tested a, uh, it didn't have the, the LCHAD gene in it. It was just a green glowy fluorescent protein. So we tested in that and it lit up the, the retina. So that looks good. And then we made the vector that we want to use for the gene therapy and we tested it in some heterozygous mice. Um, and it also seems to be there. So, um, I've got people in the lab right now that are slicing and staining eyes right now to make sure that, that it did work. So we've tested it to make sure that it works up to this point. And so once those mice are, I think we can inject them when they're four weeks old. So once the mice that are being born this week are four weeks old, then we'll, we'll inject them. And so we knock them out, put them under anesthesia. And then she has these incredible hands that can stick the needle into a mouse eye and inject it right in the back of the eye. I, I can't do it, but, but Renee can. So that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. (laughs) I know, isn't it? How, like, so how long do you think, um, before the trials, like, like the spectrum, like if you, I mean, I know you can't give like exact dates, right. But like, if you were to try to give us some kind of like timeline of how long it could take from mouse, if things go well, right. Like to humans, because like for some of us, there's like no concept of like, are we talking like years years and like, or decades or, you know, I I don't. I don't think it's decades. Um, Dr. Harding has always told me to be very cautious about timelines because it always takes double, triple the time I think it's going to take. However, there are some pathways. NIH has some programs that they're actually starting where they're creating a facility to make the vector for you, to help you get through the process at the FDA to get approval to test it. So so we're, we're looking at years, but it's not, it's not just one or two years. It's going to take a little longer than that because of just the regulation of getting to the point of actually injecting it in an eye. And, and, and to be fair, I'm, I'm glad the FDA is very cautious, right? They're not going to let us test something that's not extremely safe. So we're going to have to prove it works in the mouse. We're going to have to get it made in a very, like right now we're making it in our lab and that's obviously not a sterile safe place to make things that you're going to put into a human eye. Then we're going to need to test it in primates before they're going to let us, you know, do it in um, humans. So they're going to make sure that all those steps happen before we actually go to human trials. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm just going to look through. Um, uh, okay. So one parent asked, she said years ago, she did a biopsy um, her daughter did a punch biopsy and she came back showing TFP, but her genetic testing shows the common LCHAD mutation and one uncommon mutation. So how would she be classified according to like your study? Would she okay. be under the LCHAD setting or would she be under the TFP setting? All right. So here you're going to get an inside look of all the scientists' hot debates. So it depends on who you ask. So <laughs> Dr. Vockley says that you have to have two copies of G1528C to be called LCHAT. So he would say that that person is TFP. I, however, think that if you have one copy of the G1528C, it looks like LCHAT to me. In all other parameters, it looks like LCHAT. So I would call that LCHAT. But there is no common uh, rule that we all follow so that we're all talking about the same thing, which is a problem. Um, and we have debates at meetings about, well, is it LCHAT? Is it TFP? And how are you defining that? So I would define it in that LCHAD category with one copy of the common mutation. Dr. Vockley would say, no, that that's TFP because of the second mutation. Um, so and would he it, say it's TFP regardless as to where that second mutation was? Like, even if the second mutation yeah, was... Yeah, he, he's told me if, if it's a second mutation that's not G1528C, he calls it TFP. But I don't, I don't find that to be true. So I think that that second mutation, someone with that second, some second mutations have just as high hydroxyacyl carnitines as a G1528C homozygote. So I think that second mutation really has a, 
a big play. And so I don't, so I just call anybody that has one or two copies El Chad, but he and I debate, friendly argue that point frequently. So the answer is, it depends on who you ask. (laughs) And there's no set standard in the literature. So you just have to be careful when you read the literature. I'm really glad you pointed that out because it does get confusing when you read the literature and even when you talk to other parents, because there is this overlap of and everybody uses it different. Yes. Yeah. Even in different countries and stuff. So like, Uh it's, it's really, it's really helpful to kind of flesh some of that out and just, and talk about it. Um, based on one of your previous studies, are you still recommending daily use of DHA supplements? Yeah. So, um, in my, in our DHA study, DHA um, supplements did not stop the progression. Like it still kept going. But what it, DHA did do is if your DHA was low and you gave DHA supplements, it made the retina faster. So the, the speed at which it responded was better. So um, having low DHA makes your retina response sluggish. And why would we want that? So I do recommend it if your DHA is low to take a DHA supplement to get it up into the normal range. It doesn't have to be super normal, but because we restrict fat and we don't eat lots of fat, the DHA tends to run low. And so it does help speed it up. It doesn't, it doesn't stop the progression, but it, it does speed the response in the retina. So yes, I do still recommend that. Have you noticed a correlation between l retinopathy and the level of peripheral neuropathy? Do you think? Um... Oh, that's a good question. No. Peripheral neuropathy is, oh, it's just the most frustrating complication that I, I'm really struggling to try to get my head around. Um, I don't necessarily see a correlation. Um, some of my TFP su- subjects who have great eyesight have terrible peripheral neuropathy. So I don't see a correlation there. Um, so I think it's something different that's happening in the neuron. And at this point, I have not yet figured out how to study it. Um, I am going to send the mice off to a neurologist to see if we can test and see if they have any peripheral neuropathy. <laughs> so maybe that can help us solve the problem. But right now, I, I, I struggle with how to get at that question, but there doesn't seem to be a correlation. So you're going to, so what other, um, what other prospects do you have for these mice? Um, you have the, you have the, the eyes, the peripheral neuropathy in the heart. Yeah, the heart, we're definitely working on the heart stuff. Um, so I'm working on a grant right now to do some more studies in the heart um, because the heart is definitely progressive. Their hearts look normal at three months and they get this cardiomyopathy as they get older. So I've got a cardiologist who's really excited about, about studying some stuff in the heart. So we're for sure on the path to look at the heart and hoping that that can answer some of the heart questions I have. Um, the neuropathy is a little further behind, but ultimately we we hope that they'll help be helpful for that as well. Are there any recommendations of eye supplements for optimal eye health in the interim before gene therapy is available years down the road? Right. So <laughs> the answer is we, we haven't done the studies to show that they make a difference in LCHAD retinopathy. I can tell you, um, so I was on a panel as the nutrition scientist for the VA of all places on um, supplements for age-related macular degeneration. And that ARAD supplement that you see um, does make a difference in early age-related macular degeneration. The problem is, of course, that LCHAD retinopathy is not that. It's very, very different. Um, Would the supplements make a difference? We just haven't done studies. We don't know. But it's certainly possible. Um, the ARAD supplements are, are all, you know, they're not super, super high doses of things. So they're not, they're not going to become toxic. They're not harmful. So could they, could they be helpful? Potentially. But, but the answer is we, we just have never done the studies. And I don't know that we have the big enough population to, to look at it. It would be great to, I'm going to try to tease out a little bit of that in the, um, natural history study because we're keeping good records of who's taking what supplements and we'll, you know, include that in our statistical model. Do supplements make a difference in the, in the patients that are taking them? So we'll try to tease that out. Um, but we haven't actually done the clinical trials to say, yes, supplements make it, make a difference. I'm, I'd love for, I'd love for diet and supplements to make a difference. I'm a dietitian. That'd be super exciting, but also want to be realistic that that, that may not be the case. <laughs> Is that 
anything you can do with your mice too? Like, or like, is that a study or is that not really? Yeah, no, um, no, I, no, I'm interested in trying. um, So we can definitely try supplements in the mice. We can also try them in the cells. Um, I think I see Karen on. So in trying the knack in the cells is something we've tried about like a a niacin derivative in the cells um, to see if that helps them. So yes, we can definitely do that. Right now, I've got a group of mice that are on ketones. So we're testing ketones in the mice to see if they do better with, with oral ketones. So there's lots of things we can try um, in, in either the cells or the, or the mouse. Um, can you clarify a little bit about uh, the ARAD supplements, what you mean by that? Okay, what does ARAD stand for? I, I've forgotten. Um, so the NIH did a really large study in, again, age-related macular degeneration. So these are all old people that are, that have AMD. Um, and they, they tested a supplement. And in that supplement, it has, uh, lycopene. It has some zinc. It has, oh, I can't even remember. There's five or six things that they tested. And we looked at the data. And it does, in fact, slow the progression of age-related macular degeneration, um, the supplement. And it's called, if you see on the bottle, A-R-E-D-S, A-R-A-D-S. Um, and so it was tested in this large, like 5,000 people, um, and, and, and it did make a difference. And because of our review and saying that the data does make a difference, the VA added it to their uh, formulary list so that veterans who have age-related macular degeneration can be prescribed this supplement. Um, so it's, you'll see it in the supplement aisles. It'll say uh, ARADS um, supplement. So that's what I mean by that. And and it did make a difference in that population. But again, AMD is not L-TED retinopathy. They're completely different diseases. They affect cells differently. AMD is in older people. We're talking about kids with LCHAT. So I, whether it works in this, we just, we just don't know. Hasn't been fully tested. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your honesty with that. And I also appreciate you being willing to enter into those conversations, right? Because as parents and as patients, you want to be able to do something until, you know, but it's, it's helpful to kind of hear, hear the full scope of all of that. Um, another parent asked or a patient asked, is there anything that we can do to remove hydroxy acyl carnitines when they build up in our body or how do you, how do you address that? Um, yeah. So once they're there, I think just the same thing that you would do if we were, you know, um, if you had, if you're rhabdo, you're lots of fluids, they kind of wash out eventually, but no, I don't think there's any way there's no, there's no, uh, dialysis or filter that we can get hydroxyacylcarnitines out. I think the biggest thing for the high, and I don't want to make people crazy about trying to keep them low, but the small frequent meals, limiting the time fasting is a big, is probably the biggest thing. I do think, you know, the lower fat diet keeps them down lower Um, and trying to avoid metabolic decompensation. So we know if your, if your CKs are a hundred thousand, then your hydroxyacylcarnitines are really high. That being said, with LCHAD, there's probably no way you can always avoid decompensation. It's just trying to minimize it, right? Trying to keep it at bay as best you can. Sometimes you're going to get sick and you're going to have to ha- go to the hospital because you're in rhabdo. I mean, I think there are cases where it's unavoidable. You're just trying to keep it as infrequently as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um. This is kind of going a little bit into the heart conversation we had a couple of weeks and you might not have this data yet, but I'll throw it out to you and you can say not yet, but um, on a strict low fat diet, is cardiomyopathy still present in the mice or are you there yet with the mice? We aren't there with the mice. So mice, so, so that is one thing that's different, but you know, I, I will make the one comment that mice are not men. Um, and so we always have to translate it a little bit cautiously. Mice in general eat a low fat diet. So most of the time mice eat a diet that's 10 to 13% fat. So we did want to make their eyes sick faster. So we had this idea that we'd put them on a high fat diet and see if we could get them to go blind quicker. <laughs> and it made them really sick. In fact, it made them 
their hearts super sick and they looked terrible after two months and we had to euthanize them. So high fat diet in these mice was a horrible idea. I thought it was a great idea. It was a bad idea. So we're not going to do that again. Um, so I, I will say the high fat diet was, was they, they looked terrible, but they really looked bad. Um, so we're not going to do, we're not going to do that. Uh, if we put them on a lower fat diet, I don't know. We could try that. Um, we might put them on a, you know, a diet with a little bit more fat. We put them on a really high fat diet and we went to 45% of their calories from fat. Well, that, that was too much. <laughs> they, they didn't tolerate that. So <laughs> we won't, we won't do that experiment again. So we have made our mistakes. <laughs> well, Dr. Gillingham, if, um, if anyone, I don't see any more questions. If there are any more questions, you can feel free to unmute yourself or to give you one more second to add them in the chat. Um, but this is absolutely amazing. And we appreciate you and your team and all of your hard work and everything that you guys are doing. And just even being willing to come on and share all this with all of us and, um, and explain, you did a really excellent job of explaining all of the science behind it and how we got to where we are today and where we'll go in the future. So thank you so, so much for your time. You're very welcome. It's been fun to see everybody. So thank you guys for attending. Well, guys, um, we're going to go ahead and close out. And uh, Dr. Gillingham, I don't know if you got to see, but there are tons of hugs and thank yous to you in the chat. So if you haven't had a chance to scroll through here, there yet, definitely do that. Um, but uh, just to let you guys know, this is recorded. And so it will be posted in a couple of days. So if you're anything like me and you want to kind of go back and review and re-review, you know, just to make sure, and also just pass it along to friends who may have missed it tonight. Um, but it will be posted and the cardiac presentation is posted on the expert series page as well. If you have any questions, you can feel free to reach out to me at sherry at mitoaction.org. And I look forward to seeing you guys soon. Take care. Bye. Thanks guys.